Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we'll be talking about anti-Semitism, we'll be talking about Zionism, as well as the Labour Party and Palestine. With me today is Asa Wistanli, a journalist and an author of a recent publication, The Weaponization of Anti-Semitism. Enjoy. It goes without saying that um, anti-Semitism, just like any other form of discrimination, is, uh, is a very vile trait. Myself as, as a Muslim, as a human being, um, I find anti-Semitism just as bad as uh, racism against blacks, yeah. against Irish. I, I grew up in this country where Irish were prevented from entering certain facilities, certain restaurants and cafes and the such, travelers. Um, and obviously we have now the trait of Islamophobia. Um, Islamophobia is on par with, with all of those and any other form of, of discrimination. But the fact is that anti-Semitism over the past, I would suggest particularly probably eight to 10 years, has been so casually brandished about to the extent that I fear that it's been absolutely devalued. Yeah. Basically anyone who seems to disagree with, a ver with various parties is easily accused of anti-Semitism and therefore justifiably either cancelled or eliminated or, you know, probably even worse, losing their jobs, losing their careers and the such. And um, your book captures it perfectly, I, I, I think, that uh, weaponizing anti-Semitism, I think that that really captures where we are today that there are um, groups of particular interests that seem to use anti-Semitism against anyone who has um, a, you know, a, a bad word to say about Israel or his policies or the such. So let me first of all start by commending the, the, the title, but then querying where that came from. Yeah, well, um, credit where it's due, the title was actually the idea of my editor, the publisher at uh, Colin Robinson at uh, All Books. Um, I wanted to call it something a bit more direct, but he, he, he took me down from it. But um, what do you want to call it? I wanted to call it uh, a very Israeli coup, which is actually the last line of the book. Interesting. Um, and um, I think his title is worked out. I mean, I always liked it. And it worked out really well as well, I think, because I really think it has hit a chord with the current moment because that is what is happening in society. This book is, I mean, the subtitle mentions Jeremy Corbyn and of course a lot of it is about Jeremy Corbyn and more importantly, the movement behind Jeremy Corbyn, the kind of popular movements behind Jeremy Corbyn um, that were kind of sprung up with deeper and older roots, but sprung up in 2015 when he first became uh ran for the leadership of the labor party so it, it, you know a lot of it has to do with jeremy corbyn but it has far wider implications for british society and i would suggest the world as well um so the title really came from the fact that it is a weapon and it's being used as a weapon and it's being used as a weapon by a state which is the state of israel which, which is um a foreign power which is was hostile to jeremy corbyn so and the the kind of socialist movement around him and so the title really came from that and it it's so um, we're talking about britain yeah we're here in britain yeah so what leverage does the state of israel have over how jeremy corbyn is treated by by the media, by, you know, political party, by his own party for decades. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's... A party which, by the way, he made the most, the biggest party in terms of numbers of members yeah. across all of Europe. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, what leverage does Israel have on, on all of that? Well, the, the Israel has always had quite a lot of leverage in the Labour Party. So the Labour Party was, I mean, I get into this in the book, um, as you know, the I get into the history of the Labour Party and how pro-Israel it was for a large parts of its history, um, even before the State of Israel was was founded on the literally the mass graves of Palestinians in 1948. Um, there was uh, the Labour Party was in favour of the Balfour Declaration 
for example. Um, in 1945, shortly before Israel was founded, um, the Labour Party's policies, you know, that was when Labour domestically was very left-wing. Labour, obviously, after the Second World War, founded the uh, NHS, um, you know, nationalised industries and um, consolidated and built the modern welfare state, which has, you know, been deconstructed during the, the, the neoliberal era. But at the same time, internationally, the Labour Party was um, a colonialist party. It ran the British Empire, you know. It um, promoted and ran and increased the British Empire, worked against um, liberation movements around the world. And so that included Palestine. You know, it was in favor of the colonizers, which were European Zionists for the most part, who went to Palestine to um, to take over Palestine. And so the Labour Party has always had this um, pro-Empire, pro-Zionism, pro-Israel strain to it. Now that that tendency was challenged over the years, long before Jeremy Corbyn. So you know, as the the British left moved away from Israel, uh, it, and it moved to increasingly anti-war positions, anti-imperialist policies, uh, challenging racism, that inevitably meant that it was going to become more and more critical of Israel over the years, as it has done. And Jeremy Corbyn was on that tendency. You know, he was uh, he he was part of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, and so. The Labour Party, the the he he was on the left left side of the Labour Party, and so the the pro-Israel lobbyists in this country always considered him to be an enemy because even though before he became the leader he was considered marginal to mainstream media, as it were, um, he was um, he was still an MP even if he was a backbench MP. Yeah. And even if he was a rebel against Tony Blair and so forth, which as he was, um, for the pro-Israel lobbyists, he was considered to be a challenge and um, somebody who was the threat of a how uh, what they would perceive as a bad example, um, and that we would perceive as a good example. Um, I recall that even the uh, chief of the Joint Staff. Um, of, of the armed forces basically coming out and saying that we wouldn't accept Jeremy Corbyn uh, being prime minister of the country. This was one of the most blatant things. Yeah. So, bizarre. So after he became the leader of the Labour Party, so this is something I mentioned in the opening of my book, that um, he, when he became the leader of the Labour Party, uh, you know, he's, 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 there's, the, there's a, basically a prospect of, a democratic popular movement taking over the Labour Party. Um, and the Sunday Times publishes a front page story in which it says a senior serving general in the army has said that if Jeremy Corbyn became the prime minister, as is obviously the goal, if you're going to be the leader of the Labour Party to be elected and become prime minister, um, if he'd managed to do that, there would be effectively a mutiny in the armed forces. So, you know, this it shows that there were a huge array of forces against Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, you would be talking about Egypt. You'd be talking about some some kangaroo state yeah. somewhere in, you know, wherever. Yeah, the, like where, the military where, coup where in the Egypt. army is uh, waiting to mount a military coup as soon as um, someone is elected whom they don't like. I mean, it's it's just absolutely incredible. That's what they were talking about. The, the, uh, the reason I put that in the book, and I think it's so important, is because that's what they were talking about openly. There, that was an open threat. You know, you know, the general wasn't named, but clearly the Sunday Times has these very serious sources. So that is an open threat. And so imagine what they were doing in private. We don't fully know what they were doing in private to work against uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, and the movement behind him. Um, but clearly the cogs of the establishment, whether it be military, military or po political or you know, media-wise or the such, were working against Jeremy. Absolutely. It was an absolutely crescendos of a, of a tide wave against yeah. him. Yeah, there was, there was a lot. It was he faced really an uphill struggle, but this kind of and all of that. Now, just to put things into perspective, all of that, because Jeremy Corbyn had 
for as long as I recall, probably 35 years had been, you know, a stalwart of the Palestinian Solidarity Campaign. It had nothing to do about, you know, his position within British politics. It had very little to do with, you know, his capacity to run the country, to emerge from a global crisis, to do all of these things. It had nothing to do. All that Jeremy had done to deserve this kind of incredibly orchestrated um, tidal wave uh, from, from all corners surrounding him was the fact that he supported Palestinian rights. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, so there was, what happened was there was a, an array of, there was kind of an alliance against him. So when you have people like what I would call the deep state in terms of the, which by which I mean the permanent security and military apparatus, which has a huge amount of say in this country as it, as it does in other countries, like you mentioned Egypt, that's a good example how the Egyptian state, the Egyptian deep state, the security services, the military, the military obviously overthrew the, the first elected president that Egypt had had being, and eventually killed him in custody, Morsi. Um, so Egypt has has a deep state. Turkey very notoriously has a deep state. And but we don't like to talk about the fact that Britain also has a deep state. So it doesn't necessarily mean they control everything, but it means that MI5, MI6, the military establishment, has a huge amount of say in public affairs in this country. Um, and they're not subject to any form of democratic accountability whatsoever. And for them, there was there was a huge array of issues why they wouldn't want Jeremy Corbyn in power. But this issue of Israel became his uh, became the most useful weapon against Corbyn, and how and which is why I argue in the book that the that Israel, the state of Israel itself, and its lobby in this country, because they often act together really became the most effective weapon against Jeremy Corbyn and were in the end a, you know a major they played a major role in his downfall if not the most decisive role i mean i i do think that if it hadn't been for this kind of weaponized anti-semitism against Jeremy Corbyn he would have become prime minister um in certainly in 2017 um and if you know if if um he, you know, it's then it's another question of whether or not he could have stayed in power. That's that's another question. But I think that certainly without this weaponized anti-Semitism campaign, it, he he would have become prime minister. So it's um, for the Israel lobby, the fact of his support for Palestinians was you're absolutely right was the only reason that they were. It was definitely the primary reason. That they were against him. That was that's their main concern. And often these kind of forces, when you talk about the Labour Party right and the pro-Israel lobby being allied together, often within the Labour Party they were the same people. So you've got people like Luke Akerst, who is notoriously on the Labour Party right, but he's also um, has his day job. He runs an organisation called We Believe in Israel. So his decisions within the Labour Party, his work within the Labour Party is not going to be um, unmotivated by that fact. It's clearly going to play a major role. And the most the most really dangerous and poisonous part of it all was the fact that quite often um, pro-Israel lobbyists would um, kind of avoid that fact. They would cover up that fact of who they of of their role and their history in the pro-Israel lobby. Uh, and they would say that their concerns and their um, opposition to Corbyn was just motivated by anti-Semitism, that what he was doing was anti-Semitism, that, that, um, that his supporters were anti-Semitic and that they were saying things that were prejudiced against Jews. Um, and, you know... And when probably Jeremy Corbyn was, I, I would suggest, was one of the very first MPs, politicians, who actually stood up for the rights of Jews when they were being, you know, vilified by by the establishment at the time in the early seventies and mid seventies. Jeremy Corbyn is a long-standing anti-racist campaigner, and that's 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 just the fact of the matter. And very often his critics were people who had actually, you know, quite racist and reactionary views, and certainly pro-Israel views. So you have people like uh, Margaret Hodge attacking him. Is you know his one of his MPs, Margaret Hodge, Ruth Smith, um, Luciana Berger, 
And they all claim that that Jeremy Corbyn was a racist and an anti-Semite and all these things, um, and that that's why they were opposed to him. But actually, they'd all, in one way or another, worked to further the interests of the Israeli state in this country. It's just a fact. Margaret Hodge, she is a supporter, if you look on the website still now, of Labour Friends of Israel. They don't, technically, she's not a member because they don't have a formal membership. They have uh, MPs who support them. Um, She's one of their supporters. Um, Ruth Smith actually worked professionally in the past for the Israel lobby, BICOM, the Britain-Israel Communication and Research Centre, pro-Israel lobbying group uh, funded by um, a scion of an Israeli arms dealer. Um, and then, uh, and she also worked for the CST, which is also another pro-Israel group uh, with actually close ties to the Israeli state and even the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. Um, and Luciana Berger as well is also um, has uh, long-standing links to the Israel lobby, including uh, she'd worked previously worked for Labour Friends of Israel. So all these issues were, you know, for someone who was uh, on the other side of that, like Jeremy Corbyn, who was actually a patron of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, people, MPs who had worked in, actually worked for the Israel lobby, not just in the broadest sense of being um, somebody who um, was, uh, you know, in favor of Israeli policies and against Palestinians and in favor of the Israeli state itself supported its existence. Um, That aside, they actually were close to the actual Israel lobby and worked for the Israel lobby in some cases professionally. Of course, they're going to be opposed to Jeremy Corbyn. And then, and then because they know that um, Palestinian uh, oppression and Israeli apartheid is not a popular cause in the country at large, they have to kind of elide that distinction and kind of distract from it. And the way to do that is to try and muddy the waters and say, well, this is this is anti-Semitism. Uh, and the campaign, I would say, was quite successful in some regards. Very vile, of quite vile. I mean, we're talking here not about opposing opinions. We're talking about uh, bulldozing through um, the interests of a foreign nation, of a foreign country, a foreign state. Um, uh, not something to do with anything to do with i mean the 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 fact of the matter and this is this is something that you allude to in in your book on in several occasions the fact that it wasn't that um there was an opposing opinion on palestine or israel to that of jeremy corbyn's it was that very basically the <laughs> the absolute ripping apart and shredding to bits the whole legacy of Jeremy Corbyn, who you know has been an MP uh, for for decades, and who has been elected time and time and time again by his constituency, and and even some of his political adversaries would would attest to the fact that he's one of the hardest working, if not the hardest working MP in the House of Commons. So it's it's that it's not just opposing a view, it's not just criticizing and saying you know you have it absolutely wrong. It's going beyond to absolutely destroying, you know, someone. And we could also allude to, you know, mention Ken Livingston, for instance. I mean, the treatment that he came for, someone again, whom if you were to talk about Labour over the course of the past 40, 50 years, you know, along with Tony Benn and along with, you have to mention someone like Ken Livingston. But by his own party, let alone by, you know, the Conservatives or his political adversaries, by his own party. Um, absolutely demolished and destructed. It's 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 vile. Yeah, I think this is a really important point, actually, Anastasia. I'm glad you've made it because you couldn't even debate these issues. This is the thing. You couldn't even have a discussion. You couldn't even have that discussion in the Labour Party. You couldn't even, you know, even when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader, he wasn't in control of the party. You know, he doesn't, he, he's a very democratic person, you know, um, Almost to a fault, I would say. Yeah, he had Keir Starmer in his cabinet, for God's sake. (laughs) Incredible. Yeah. So, you know, even to the point of where people who were openly sabotaging him, he wasn't working against them. He didn't, you know, he didn't prevent that in any way. Um, And yet, so yes, it led to this circumstance where you you couldn't have a debate within the Labour Party over... um, 
over the issue of Zionism, over the issue of Israel. It was, it was, and and what is, and take for example the the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. You know, to oppose, it was widely opposed. It was widely opposed by Palestinians, by Palestinian solidarity groups. Um, and ethnic and religious minority groups as well, you know, a, a wide array as, of groups, as you know, opposed it because it was um, ostensibly a, a definition of anti-Semitism. But if you actually looked at the text and the um, supposed examples of anti-Semitism in, in it, the majority of those examples were actually all about Israel. It wasn't anything to do with Am protecting Jews. Am I correct, Jews. by the way? Am I correct in recalling that one of the critics of the definition was the person who actually proposed or drafted the definition. That's right. Because yeah. he warned that this would be used as a, as a tool to stifle free free speech or the such. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I believe it's uh, Kenneth Roth, I think is the name. And he was one of the people who came up with the drafting of this definition. But one of the most interesting things has come to light uh, more recently um, and my colleague at the Electronic Intifada, where I, you know, most of my journalism is, uh, my colleague Ali Abu Nama, he wrote an article about this recently, um, uh, uh, mentioning the findings of a, a book by an academic called Tony Lerman, who's who's an actual, he is an actual expert on anti-Semitism, um, and he he is the founder of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, um, and in in his book, it mentions the fact that the the definition this this um this definition of anti-semitism which is actually not really it's it's really i mean i've i've always called it israel's chosen definition of anti-semitism because it's really to protect israel and criticism to stop and prevent and chill free speech on criticism of israel in tony lerman's book he mentions the fact that the study that that came up with this uh, definition in the first place was actually funded by the Mossad, which is Israel's um, uh, in foreign intelligence agency, Israel's CIA, effectively, which is you know has this um, reputation and notorious history of being very a brutal assassination and torture agency. You know, kidnapped um, Mordechai Vanunu, for example, the um, nuclear whistleblower, and often assassinates Palestinian activists and uh, freedom fighters and so forth. And yet this is the same organization which is trying to push uh, a kind of weaponized form of anti-Semitism, you know. And, they're, they're, and yet in this country we're supposed to believe that it has nothing to do with Israel. It's, you know, the, the, this campaign of weaponized anti-Semitism has been so successful, you know, it's, it's and, and that's what I try and get forward in my book and unfortunately is the case that the the massive um public attention and public uh disinformation campaign i would say against jeremy corbyn as now because it, it ended up as you mentioned and sort of alluded to um really deposing him from public life really not only you know was he defeated in the election but he was kicked out of the Labour Party and he's now going forward to the next election. He's not going to be the Labour Party MP, not going to be the Labour Party candidate for the, the MP. He's going to, if he runs in the election, he's going to have to run against the Labour Party. We'll see whether or not he does that. Um, but it, it that has been so successful, it's now gone on and expanded to other areas of public life. So we see, you know, the um, the leader of the National Union of Students being kicked out. Um, David Miller, one of the leading experts in the country on um, the pro-Israel lobby and Islamophobia and just uh, how lobbying and propaganda works in general, was kicked out of his position at Bristol University, essentially for his opposition to anti for his opposition to Zionism, for the and and you know these despite, two sorry one more thing just despite the fact that two independent investigations by barristers found that he was absolutely not guilty of anti-Semitism as as his uh, opponents. I mean, and, and the two examples you give of the NUS president, elected president, may I add, as well as David Miller. I mean, those two examples are something that concerns me personally. And we had a chat about this just uh, just before the show. And that is that university campuses used to be, to a large extent, 
uh, an arena where there are robust views being exchanged, there are ideas, there are debates, there are dialogue. Even 10, 15 years ago, things have changed so much now. You know, I, I recall a time uh, across several years when there wasn't a week that, that would go by without me being invited to speak on many issues, but particularly about, issue, uh, about Palestine and Israel. I have to say that across the past probably eight years, nine years, I think one or maybe two invitations came through. And, you know, the posters needed to be worded in such a way. And it was such a slog trying to get it through so that basically the university wouldn't veto it. And um, this is what concerns me because young people today are being uh, suffocated uh, from engaging in debate, discussion in, you know, having these robust exchanges of views and opinions, of talking about politics freely, talking about ideology freely, of expressing themselves and the such, and then coming to a realization of what where they want to be on on the spectrum of, 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 of intellectualism. Or and whatever. we can't even have the discussion now. This is, this is, the, this is the problem. No. And, uh, and that doesn't bode well for the entire country for the next, you know, for our future. Yeah, this is exactly it. And this is why it's about much more than Jeremy Corbyn as an individual. It's, it concerns more than socialists. It's about the public sphere in this country and in the West in general. You know, we see very similar tactics all over the Western world, the so-called democracies, which are becoming increased, as you say, becoming increasingly undemocratic. You know, we we see similar things happening in in the U.S. Even which I mean, at least the U.S. has um, the First Amendment, um, and um, I mean, I would say things are, are are worse here now than the United States. Well, they are. I mean, we it used we to have, be the other way a, around. We have a Palis a Palestinian originating congresswoman, for instance. In, yeah. In, in, we have you know a block of maybe a very few, a clutch of. Of, uh, of representatives and Congress uh, people, but they're they're there, you know, and the and it's probably quite quite novel in the states of the United States that within the House in Capitol Hill, you know, there is now calls for Palestinian rights, calls for even BDS and the such that that's happening. It's not happening over here. Couldn't have it here, no. and and that in itself is quite remarkable. I mean, only a. Uh, you know, maybe uh, 2005 when I was in the United States and I was proposing maybe, you know, students should talk about, you know, Palestine and the such. And I was sort of whispered in my ear that that's not something that we talk about. Please don't get us into trouble. <laughs> and I thought, well, listen, in the UK, we're having this fantastic debate about all of this and people are exchanging ideas. And now it's the absolute reverse. It's the absolute reverse. In fact, I would go even further to say um, someone I met in Israeli, and um, um, he cheekily sort of asked me, he said, oh, so how, how was the discussion about Israel going on in the UK? And I told him what's happening. And he said, you know, it's funny. There's far more freedom in Israel about criticizing Israel than there seems to be in where you are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, you, you, even in the, the liberal, um, I mean, ultimately it is a Zionist newspaper, Haaretz, even in the liberal, some of the things you would have in um, Haaretz, you could not have in The Guardian, for example, you know. B'Tselem, who called Israel an apartheid state. Yeah. An Israeli human rights organization. They weren't even, I mean, I found that report really interesting. I mean, it, I mean, on one, on one level is very late uh, and the same, the same issue with um, Amnesty International and Human Rights was coming to this um, conclusion a couple of years ago that um, the state of Israel is an apartheid state. Um, on one level, it's very late because Palestinians have been saying that actually for decades. It, um, they're, you know, they've been literally saying it for decades. So, and so, there's a question there to me about within, again, within our so-called democratic Western societies and uh, governments, um, why are Palestinians saying this? Why is that not considered to be just as good and as valid, or even better than an Israeli? Or a Jewish person in the West saying it. There's a question there about that. So it's interesting. But on the other hand, at least they finally come around and, and they are saying it so that it's progress, although it's slow progress. But the other interesting thing I found about that, about that B'Tselem report was they went even further and they, they called it, they called Israel a regime of Jewish supremacy between the river and the sea, which was which is is quite an interesting way to put it. Um and uh 
yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's becoming so extreme in Britain that um, it's that you know the Corbyn years when Jeremy Corbyn first came in, I think we were all sort of hoping for this great opening up, and um, I think that did happen, but only for a very short period, and then there was a massive backlash, and we've reached a stage now where things have become worse in a lot of ways. Coming back to your book, uh, you in your introduction, you talk about this project being uh, a seven-year uh, project. Yeah. So basically, uh, by that, my maths isn't brilliant. So you started around the earlier uh, years of Corbyn. Yeah. Around 2016, and you open up the very first line is about is about Corbyn, and clearly you use the example of Jeremy Corbyn in order to make the bigger point. Uh, because it is such a flagrant example, and it's an example that we don't need to go back in history in order to try to understand or unravel. It's something that happened in our midst, and it's still happening. And it's now. still happening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the aftermath is—I mean, only a few, a couple of weeks ago, Diane Abbott was expelled from the Labour Party again. Another stalwart of the Labour movement. Yeah. So, how do you think? I'm not going to say how do you hope, but how do you think the book will be received? I'm not talking about the critics. Because obviously the, obviously the backlash has already started. How do you think it will be received by people who really want to know what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I started writing and reporting about it back in 2015, actually. It was when, when Jeremy Corbyn first was running for the leadership of, of, the, of the Labour Party in the summer of 2015. I started from then because the attacks on him started straight away from the pro-Israel lobby, from the Jewish Chronicle and from his other sort of uh, opponents in the pro-Israel lobby, essentially, and I, I talk about and them in some detail in the book. And I knew that they were going to not let this issue go. They were going to hang on to it, and they were going to keep they were going to keep hammering the point home. And it was something that became. It was something that I I just. It was kind of a, it was a tiring task to keep reporting on it because it was a kind of interminable story that never ended and it's still not ended now. I mean, what I mean, my great hope for the book is to spark a debate really um, about this issue and about the lessons that can be learned from the Corbyn years because I think, well, one issue is that I don't think the British left, but in particular, has has learned the lessons of it that they've. They haven't faced up to the fact of how defeated they've been by the issue that, you know, there was parts of the Labour Party left, which basically decided upon that their response to these smears was going to be essentially capitulation and appeasement and just sort of say, well, OK, Ken, what Ken Livingston said, maybe it wasn't anti-Semitic, but it wasn't very diplomatic. And so therefore, just forget about him and we just need to move on. OK. Let's okay. Let's let's just for the sake of argument, let's concede that point. Say what Ken Livingston said wasn't very diplomatic. I happen to disagree, but just for the sake of argument, let's say it wasn't very diplomatic. What you're saying then is he should have been kicked out of the Labour Party for not being very diplomatic. On what other issue would you possibly make that argument? It's bizarre to me. Like this is. You know, Ken Livingston was an anti-racist at a time when the national newspapers were just openly racist in a way that, I mean, look, an some of the national... An anti-Jew. Yeah. Not just racist, but anti-Jew. Yeah. That was a time when Ken Livingston, Jeremy Corbyn, Tony Benn, and many, many others were campaigning on the streets for the rights and for the dignity and humanity of the Jewish community. It, it, it's, it's absolutely bizarre. I agree with you, absolutely. Can I ask you a question here? And it's, this is in order to open up another line of discussion. What's so bad about Zionism? Why do you have a problem with Zionism? Well, um, Zionism is the official ideology of the state of Israel. It's the ideology that says that European Jews should become... Number one, it says European Jews are not Europeans, really. They're actually, quote unquote, Semites who are originally from the Middle East. That's not true number one that is actually racism that's anti-semitism and that is that is something that um anti-semites and uh zionists both agree on that actually european jews shouldn't stay in europe they should become settlers in palestine and the, the so that's one reason i have a problem with zionism zionism is actually anti-semitic um but the main reason i have a problem with zionism is that it says that 
the indigenous people of Palestine, the Palestinians, who are all religions, including Jewish, a minority of Palestinians are Jewish, um, but Muslims, Christians, and everybody else Palestinian, um, should not be entitled to live on their land and should be essentially driven off their land because simply because they're not Jewish, that only Jews have a right to live on that land, essentially. And that, in a nutshell, is the problem with Zionism. It's a settler colonial movement in a very similar way that to um, the white supremacist ideology of South Africa and the so-called Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a colonial movement in a very similar way to a lot of other settler colonial movements that were promoted under the British Empire and other empires. Australia, the United States, yeah. South Africa, to name but a few. And they were hoping for the same in, in Palestine. Yeah. And so they were partially successful in, in removing, they wanted to remove the indigenous population from the land. And they were, they were part, only partially successful in 1948 in removing uh, around 800,000 Palestinians by force from the land and they became then they they then became refugees and they still have never been allowed to return to their land in Palestine again purely and simply because they are not Jewish and so because uh, Zionism promotes a a regime in the historic land of Palestine between the river Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea which as we mentioned, the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem now calls a regime of Jewish supremacy between the river and the sea, that Palestinians living, Palestinians remaining in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip have no rights. They have no political rights. They have no human rights. They, they, they have no right to live on their land. They can be displaced um, and driven off their land at any time. Um, Palestinian villages are being destroyed and depopulated by the military occupation, the Israeli military occupation. And so, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I've lived in the West Bank. I lived there for about two years and I've seen it with my own eyes. Like Palestinians are discriminated against. It's, it's uh, the other thing that these uh, human rights groups, in, including B'Tselem, as we mentioned, uh, say is that Israel is an apartheid state because very similar to apartheid South Africa, um, and again, Rhodesia, the former Rhodesia, um, is now called Zimbabwe, when it was a white supremacist regime, um, they had uh, one set of laws for the white settler population and another set of laws, a set, effectively a military regime for the indigenous people. And so it's very similar in Palestine. Palestinians living in the West Bank, remaining in the West Bank, who've managed to hold on barely to, to, to live in, in their land, although they don't have any political or human rights, they've managed, if they've managed to stay on their land, um, they are subjected to military law, whereas the Israeli settlers living in the West Bank, especially in places like Hebron, um, where you know, ex there's a really extreme and open form of Israeli apartheid, um, they are not subjected to military laws. They have um, civilian courts. And so you know, there is literally two separate sets of laws for the settler population and the indigenous population. And the ideology behind all of this is Zionism, describes itself, calls itself Zionism. And that is why I have a problem with Zionism. And lest we forget, up until recently, in my living memory, Zionism was classified as a hate ideology, even by the United Nations. It yeah. was globally recognized yeah. as a hate fueling ideology. Yeah, the United Nations for a period did recognize uh, that um, Zionism is racism. So there's a very, um, that was later overturned at the behest of the Americans, but the, the United Nations is an interesting body because it was, it was the United Nations that was partly responsible for the partition of Palestine and the and and therefore by extension for the displacement of partially, partially re responsible for the displacement of the Palestinians the the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in 1948 but what's crucial to remember and I think a lot of people forget or don't know is that at that time in 1948 that was before decolonization and there were so many nations in Africa in Asia around the world that had not yet had their independence and so the actual, um, it meant that the essentially uh, Britain and America and the Western um, uh, colonial nations, the imperial nations, were 
had more control and more say in the United Nations uh, at the time, which was why the partition of Palestine was kind of approved at the time. Later on in the 70s, um, you know, after there was successful decolonization movements around the world and um, there were um, more independent nations, there were obviously, even the governments were far more sympathetic to the Palestinian liberation struggle. And that is when the period came that um, United Nations General Assembly recognized the fact that Zionism is racism. And so, you know, that is something that uh, I still think is accurate now. Um, the the issue of Palestine is of global impact. And it's, uh, it, it, I think it's it's actually the longest running conflict or issue that the, the world has failed to, uh, um, to, to resolve. Um, and uh, wherever you go, the issue of Palestine is, is, is hurt. Now, it's, uh, it's uplifting when uh, wherever there's a march or protest or the remembrance of, for instance, the Nakba, where you go and see countless young people, men and women, carrying the Palestinian flag and identifying the, the, the Palestinian kufiya, for instance. And, uh, and that is extremely uplifting. But it has become, for a while now probably, but now even more so, it's become a defining element or issue of the left, the political left. I'm not entirely sure whether that's in the best interest of the Palestinian cause. Um, it's fine that the left see, you know, stand favorably, let's say, with Palestinian rights, um, either support absolutely or, you know, mildly, but, but still it's... But the fact that it's outside of the left, um, you, you have virtually no support for Palestinian rights, at least in our country, at least uh, here in the UK. I'm not entirely sure whether that's in the best interest of the cause itself. Um, well... The way I see it is that it's uh, a decolonial issue. And so, I mean, I think polling shows that even in the United States now, that there is broad support among the populations of, in general, for the Palestinians, for Palestinians to... Because look, when you're arguing for Zionism, at the end of the day, you are arguing for... Colonialism. The, you are arguing for colonialism and you're arguing for apartheid. You're arguing. You're arguing for... The idea that Palestinians shouldn't be equal to Jews who live in the land of Palestine, the historic land of Palestine. Um, and so ultimately, in the modern era, that is just not going to be um, popular in any way. And I think, except amongst just ardent racists, essentially. And that is why, you know, the Israel lobby, the state of Israel as well, has to kind of do things behind closed doors and do these kind of um, narrowing of the the space and this kind of um, weaponizing of anti-Semitism and stopping the discussion from happening because they know they can't win the discussion in any kind of open debate. And so I think if I take hope from anything, it is from just seeing that there is change among the populations, among among young people, among even the Democratic Party in the United States, and in terms of its voter base, not obviously not in the leadership, the elected leadership, um, and not among the lawmakers, except as you mentioned, amongst some of the some of the more progressive lawmakers and so forth. But it it it's becoming I think I agree with you in the sense that um we want to broaden out the issue as much as possible. Um, and I think that that is happening, that that kind of change is happening when you look at it in a historical context. And, you know, even the left, even the British left, as I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, historically was actually quite pro-Israel. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And so um, that has changed. And so I think it needs to change in the whole of society. I mean, you, you talk about the left. In reality, what's left of the left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not much. I mean, I, I think the, I think the British left has been defeated for a generation. I don't, I don't see, I don't see any hope for it. Basically, I mean, I know that sounds quite despairing, um, but you know that is what the weaponizing of anti-Semitism has done, and what this issue has done. The man, the manufactured anti-Semitism campaign against Jeremy Corbyn was so successful that it's it's gone, as we mentioned, it's gone to all sectors of society. It's made it very very hard to even talk about. It's it's made it hard to talk about any kind of progressive change in the country, about the Palestine solidarity, about the issue of Palestine in general, um, and it's just made it so that 
free speech in general is just very very chilled and it it's um it's uh it's kind of a bleak picture on the other hand when the jeremy corbyn movement did happen nobody saw that coming so something new could happen and uh you know maybe we just don't see it but for the moment things do look very bleak. the labor party i mean it's uh, unfortunate that uh, we're seeing um a recycling of the blair model but with far less charisma i would suggest <laughs> with keir starmer <laughs> yeah um I yeah mean, he is reaching but but um it, it, i mean polls if we're to believe polls uh, i'm not entirely sure whether we should but if we're to, to believe polls then if an election happened tomorrow uh, the nation would vote uh, Labour in, but um, Labour that um, seems to have done away with most of what made Labour Labour. I mean, the last, uh, the last thing, I mean, besides obviously the the stalwarts of the Labour Labour Party of the past thirty, forty years, but even policies such as tuition fees and the such. I mean, it seems that Keir Starmer has absolutely surrendered to you know, to right-wing policies that, uh, no, 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 we're, we're not going to touch those. We're not going to campaign for students anymore. We're not going to... So um, let's just, let's go with those hypotheticals of the polls and assume that Labour came into power, you know, tomorrow, next week or whatever. What are we likely to see? Um, well, I mean, I think things would get a lot worse on this issue. And I think that we would see, um, we would say a very empowered uh oppressive state i think and i think that the, the labor party under tony blair was very pro-war and it was also quite authoritarian and i think the way that keir starmer has acted as the leader of the labor party number one he's been incredibly dishonest so he campaigned to be the amongst the membership to be the leader of the labor party and the when he did that, what he claimed that was he he was going to be Jeremy Corbyn's policies, but in a more charismatic style, um, and he made these pledges to that effect. And he is by now he has abandoned all those pledges, and he's up upturned. I mean, one of the things that he said that he would do would be to be a broad church in the party. Or what's he done? He's purged the party. Two hundred thousand members have been driven out or left. Um, in despair um, because they're from the pro-Corbyn tendency. Um, and it, it, I think that shows that it, there's a real concern there to me when he, if Kistan was to get into government, that he um, would act in a very similar way in government. And it showed, uh, to me, it shows that um, if he's acting in that way in opposition, there's absolutely no reason to believe in it. It'll be any other way but dishonest in government, and it's it's, it's incredibly concerning um, to me. I think the polling um, again, you never know what polls to believe. You know, when there's an election, then they're, they're very likely to narrow, especially if the um, if the Conservative government comes around in any way to uniting around its leader, which doesn't look very likely at the moment. I, that's a given, but. What I would say is polling does also show that there's a large constituency in the country which wants a new party to take on both Labour and the Conservatives. Um, and, um, you know, someone like Jeremy Corbyn, if he had the political will to do it, could lead that party. Yes, the, we, you know, we don't have a proportional representation system, so it makes it incredibly hard for a third party. Um, but I think that um, if there's... To, if there is to be any kind of uh, progressive change in the country, then that needs to happen. And, you know, there is a massive constituency out there for it because there's a great amount of despair, I think, in the country in general. You know? True, true. Back to your book. How well has it been received? It's early days, but how well do you think it's been received? Yeah, it's going well so far. The publisher's very happy with it. Um, had several positive reviews invited to do um, promotional events yeah yeah i've i've, I've had a lot i can't keep up with them at the moment there's a lot of um activists and and several bookshops who want to put on an event about it uh, and so you know we'll be announcing those in the coming days and weeks and uh yeah hopefully doing a bit of a tour around the country to talk about it and uh um there's been uh there's been only one negative review from the Jewish Chronicle, which um, okay, <laughs> which uh, 
I I'm surprised they reviewed it. To be honest, right. I thought they would do yeah, the usual. Think that the, the, they wouldn't really bring it up. I thought they would sort of try and ignore it, basically. But I think they thought they would get a hatchet job in first. And um, the the, uh, the review is interesting because it is a hatchet job. But um, she does say that it uh, reads like a a political thriller. Uh, it reads like a whodunit, which is uh, fantastic. Which is what I was going fantastic. for. So uh... <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now I'm now driven even further to to, to get to yeah. get hold of, hold of. Yeah, but, I mean, I, I try but, I try to write in an engaging style and not an academic but listen, style. You know, from from what you get, from the kind of feedback, from the people that you meet, from the events that you attend, um, do you get a sense of optimism in regards with uh, with the issue of Palestine? I, I have to say, I mean, to not to preempt your your question but i have to say that i am incredibly hopeful i mean uh, the, the the marches the rallies the events the i mean and the young faces that i see all around me is is something that fills my heart with hope not sure about you i agree when i, I mean i when i see the chilling of free speech uh, uh, the, the things that you describe how it's so hard now to get on an on-campus event about Palestine, it has to be vetted, and you know your your speakers have to be uh, always challenged, and you know it, you know the 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 administration has to have a say. It is so difficult. I find that very very difficult and quite pressing at times. But I agree with you when you just see generation after generation and, and the young people who turn up at events and rallies, and and the the popular support there is for people. For the Palestinian people, even amongst people who don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of of history and all the you know the the way that the um, the Israel lobby works and operates, people get it on an instinctual level that this is oppression and it needs to be opposed, and that we can unite to do that. And so that does give me a great amount of hope when I see things like that. Fantastic! Thank you very much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>